HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to Spill and Dish, a podcast from the Specialty Food Association. Founded in 1952, SFA is the leading trade association and source of information about the $175 billion specialty food industry. We champion the food producers, retailers, and other buyers who make up the specialty food world. Each episode, we want to share the stories behind the products made and sold by our members who are helping shape the future of food. You can listen and discover the inspiration, recipe, craft, culture, ingredients, and production methods that help answer the question, what makes specialty food special? I'm today's host, Julie Gallagher, Content Director at SFA. We're excited to bring you today's episode and so happy to be working with Heritage Radio Network, a nonprofit podcast network covering the world of food, drink, and agriculture, and expanding the way eaters think about food. Today's guest is David Kemp, CEO of Village Gourmet, a producer of fine meats and snacks that markets products under the brands Three Little Pigs, Fabrique de Liche, Longini, Espositos, and Uncle Charlie's. David is also the winner of SFA's 2023 Leadership Award for Vision. Welcome, David. You have such a fascinating background, and I can't wait to hear more about it. Um, and I understand that you have a military background. Can you start off by telling me a bit about that? Sure. Thanks, Julie, for having me today. Um, so, you know, I grew up in the New York area, and you know, my, my dad was in business, and you know, I always kind of thought I'd go into business. So I didn't have a plan to join the military. And then September 11th happened, and I decided that I wanted to play an active role in the defense of our country. Um, so you know, that led me to um, decide to join the Marine Corps, and I ended up was in the Marine Corps officer program while at, um, at college. And then as soon as I graduated, I commissioned as an officer in the Marine Corps. Wow. So you were a student at Yale during 9-11? I was actually or before. Okay. Um, I, I was a student at, I was in high school during 9-11. Okay. So, yeah. 
Wow. Okay. And then, so you um, served two terms in Afghanistan? Yeah, I did two deployments to Afghanistan. So okay. they were, um, you know, it was 2010 and 2012, so a while ago now. And it was, uh, it was, it was what I signed up to do. And it was a, you know, great but tough experience. Um, but happy that I did it because that's, again, kind of why I wanted to join. Okay. And then, so you came back to the States and then what happened? Yeah. So I, I came back to the States and I decided that um, you know, I would wanted to go into business, which is probably before September 11th, what I had always kind of planned on doing. And actually, I applied for business school while I was in the Marines and did my um, business school interviews on a satellite phone in Afghanistan. So wow. I think, yeah, um, that definitely made it memorable, probably helped uh, help those interviews a little bit, because if I didn't like a question, I could just say, oh, I can't hear you. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I applied to business school, and I went and got my MBA at Harvard, and I was... Um, you know, a little bit unsure of what I wanted to do. And I had a summer internship in consulting. Um, and, you know, I liked it enough, but it just wasn't something that I was passionate about. And after the Marines, you know, I wanted to do something that I was still passionate about. Because in the Marine Corps, you know, one thing, whether it's a good or bad day, you're, you're passionate about it. And it's kind of a motivating thing to be part of and have a purpose. And so I, it's just consulting for me wasn't that thing. And it can be for others, but just wasn't wasn't my path. And so I ended up deciding I wanted to do something more entrepreneurial and look for a business to quickly buy and run. And so I ended up, after business school, ended up getting connected to Alan, who was the founder, one of the two founders of Three Little Pigs, and had been you know, running it for a while as the other founder had passed away in the 90s. And he didn't really have an exit plan. His daughter was 14. Um, you know, He was uh, had a late start, and the rest of his family was in France. And so he needed a way to make sure that the business got passed on to for the future. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's really interesting. So had you set out looking for a food business in particular, or how did you? No, I didn't. I, I actually, I probably looked at a ton of, I mean, I did look at a ton of different businesses, like ranging from things you would never think of, like window film, which is not something I thought of before and not something I really think about after, or you know, other manufacturing industries or service industries, just across the whole wide variety. But I definitely felt a connection to Three Little Pigs and Alain. And I had, um, my family has a place in France, and I, I'm not French, but I, you know, I grew up going to France and appreciating French culture and food. And so I think there was just, um, I was excited about it. And I, I love charcuterie, and so it was just a great, great fit for me. Okay, and then, um, so you joined the business, and then you became partner? Yeah, so Alain um, stayed on for a couple of years after that, and it was, it was, I had a great, I still have a great relationship with Alan. I mean, he was instrumental in teaching me about the industry and about, you know, everything. Because I didn't have, it was, in a way, it was my first job, right? I mean, the Marine Corps isn't really a job. So I had a summer internship consulting. But I came into Three Little Pigs as, you know, 30 years old and had never, certainly never run a business and never really been in a business. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, Alan stayed on for really three years there and helped mentor and guide me along with, you know, the rest of the team, some of whom are still part of the company now, like, Maha and Leaf, and you know, I, I really owe a lot of it to them because I didn't come in with the experience, and if I didn't have a good team there, um, I wouldn't have been able to do what, I, what I've done. Were there um, skills that you sort of drew upon from your military service in the job? They are so different, but I'm sure you know you were able to tap into things that you had learned. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's some stuff which, uh, thankfully, I've never used again out of the military. Um, but uh, yeah, I think the general leadership principles that you learn in the military. I mean, that's as a 23-year-old, I had a platoon of 45 Marines that I was leading in combat, right? And that's the kind of experience that 
most people, very, very few people get at that age. Um, and so I think the leadership skills and the decision-making skills, those transfer across any kind of, you know, whether it's the Marines or business or anything. And so I think that certainly hopefully brought with me to the company. Okay. And then I know that you grew the portfolio of products. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So I think, you know, over the years with Three Little Pigs, we've definitely expanded our product line and, um, you know, we launched an organic line of pate slices, and that's nationwide in Whole Foods now, uh, among other places. Um, we've launched Egg Bites, which have done tremendously well for us. And then we've also um, really broadened our, well, we've, always, we've done ham for many, many years, but it was always kind of behind the counter ham or food service ham. And we launched a, um, a sliced ham, and that, you know, that has done really well for us the last couple of years, and we're expanding that line this year. Okay, and then you started acquiring businesses as well. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, I didn't go into it thinking, oh, I wanted to acquire other businesses along the way um, because that, that just wasn't my goal at the time. Um, but a couple of years in, uh, Rich Longini, who was, you know, third generation running Longini, he, you know, he had the same kind of dynamic where he needed someone to take over the business because his family just didn't, didn't want to run a sausage company. Um, and so he had heard what I had done. You know, it's, it was pretty, it's in New Haven, so not that far from New York what I had done with Elan and um, reached out and you know, I realized that it could be a good way to continue expanding the business because it was a similar you know, high quality product, um, family brand that, you know, that Rich had done a great job managing but needed someone to take it for the future. Mm-hmm. So are these families still involved with the business? At this point, you know, Rich Longini um, consults, and you know, I was talking to him earlier this week, and I always catch up with him. Um, you know, Alan stops by the office every once in a while. He's not part of the business anymore, but he's always, in a sense, he's always part of the business because he was the founder of it, and we love it when he comes by the office. And um, you know, it's just a great guy to have around and be part of. And it's still, um, it's always his company in a way, right? Because he's, his DNA is part of the company. Mm-hmm. And then tell me about Village Gourmet. Um, that launched in 2020? Yeah, so I think over the years, you know, we, we um, added Longini into the portfolio about five years ago. And then a couple of years ago, um, you know, Sebastian at Fabrique de Lis, who's the president of Fabrique de Lis, um, that was the next kind of acquisition that we did or brought into the family. And we realized that kind of needed a name to separate, you know, the overall group from each individual brand because it was getting confusing. and. You know, it wasn't like three little pigs running for Brique de Lise by any means. And so we had to change, uh, you know, launch the name Village Gourmet to give kind of an overall umbrella to the brands that we have under us. And did that happen before or after the pandemic? It happened like a month before the pandemic. So okay. right, right then. Um, so, yeah, we uh, for Brique de Lise became part of Village Gourmet January 31st. And I, yeah, I guess technically the pandemic was going already then. But, you know, mm-hmm. it really didn't um, rev up till March with all the shutdowns. And then did you have to sort of pivot your business during the pandemic? I mean, how are your consumers changing their eating habits, if at all? Yeah, no, it's quite dramatic shifts. I mean, as you can imagine, I mean, we had, you know, in mid-March, everything sold because people were just grabbing anything they could at the grocery store. But then the retail part of our charcuterie business actually had a very tough couple months because so much of charcuterie is about bringing people together and parties and sharing. And that wasn't really happening in those months of COVID. But luckily, our business is fairly diversified because the sausage part of the business, you know, that is more of a cook at home thing that you're going to do even if it's just a couple people eating at home. And so that Mm -hmm. part did really well and balanced it out. And we also have 
a bunch of different channels too. So, you know, our food service, restaurants, that that obviously did very poorly during that time period. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, overall retail did well, but we also had have a lot of e-commerce partners that, um, as you can imagine, had a, a really strong year that year, which which balanced us out. So if you, you know, if you look at how we were growing in January of that year before the pandemic, you know, we had been up about 25% over the pre prior year. Mm -hmm. And then if you look at the January of the next year, we were also up 25%, but totally different parts of our business yeah. were growing. Um, and so it's just, it ended up by luck, not by design, kind of being a balanced portfolio for us, but right. um, yeah, didn't predict it, and that's, that's for sure. So kind of lucked out there. Are things getting back to normal now? I hate to say back to normal because I don't want to, one, I don't want to jinx us, um, but two, it's it's never going to be exactly the same as it was before, I think. But, you know, in terms of buying patterns, I mean, I think we've seen more or less um, settling back to normal. Um, you know, we do more e-commerce than we did four years ago, but I think that was growing anyways, but maybe it's grown a little bit more than it otherwise would have. Um, but, you know, more or less we're seeing patterns go back to how they were before COVID and you know, our restaurants and food service partners are doing really well as, as well as our retailers, but they're not, you know, there's not the tailwind behind retail anymore. How is inflation impacting your business and your consumers' um, spending habits, I guess? Are you passing along increases? How's that working? Yeah, no, it's been a, a tough year with that for sure. And I think, you know, if I look at the first you know, six years I've been running the business, I mean, we would very, very occasionally do a price increase. You know, it was not a yearly thing. It was one, you know, when I had to, but things were pretty steady. And that's just, that mindset had to change for us because it was just, you know, we we were probably a little bit slow to start with price increases because we hadn't been used to doing them all the time and, and we had to catch up, um, basically. But a lot of our inputs had have gone up dramatically. I mean, we buy, you know, eggs, we buy um, pork, we buy chicken. I mean, there were at times this summer, I mean, Things were almost everything was double or triple what it had been four years ago, and thankfully things are besides eggs are, have stabilized a bit um, and have come down a bit at least in some of the commodities. Um, but it's still been you know quite a difference from how we ran the business four or five years ago. Right. Are the specialty consumers that you're targeting um, a little bit less price sensitive? Would you say? Yeah, that's an interesting question, and I think it's a little bit too early to know still um, and that we you know we've done price increases and so far it hasn't really affected our sales and I think that you know people are probably a little bit less price sensitive at the on the specialty side but we're only we're not really even in a recession yet at least according to economists and so you know that may change over time um, you know one thing though that if you look back and I, I wasn't running the business then but if you look back to the 2008-2009 recession and I look at our numbers from then you know we actually yeah lost maybe a couple points of growth compared to before. And that's because a lot of the, with the charcuterie items, um, you know, maybe they're not eating at a, going out to fancy restaurants, so they buy it in the store. And even though it's a little expensive, it compared to a night out in a restaurant, it's not as expensive. And so, you know, we, we see balance that way. And again, I think, you know, an actual recession would knock a couple points of growth because I think consumers are becoming more price sensitive now than they were a year ago. And I, I think maybe starting to see the effects of that in terms of trading down a bit. Um, but it hasn't been a huge effect yet. Okay. How were the winter holiday? Um, how was the winter holiday season for your product? Yeah, we had a really good um, fourth quarter, which was which was great to see. I think, like many people, we were worried about um, how sales were going to go and whether you know we would see kind of 
cutbacks compared to prior years, but we ended up the year, you know, up 23%. Um, so we had another very strong year, and fourth quarter was pretty much just as strong as the other quarters. Um, but, you know, I certainly have seen at some of our retailers where maybe have more price sensitive consumers that, that may be trading down a little bit there. Is there education that goes into um, marketing your products? Well, in particular, you know, the pate part of our business, which is actually yeah. uh, for Brief Delice and Three Little Pigs, um, you know, started as really pate companies. And, and we do all sorts of charcuterie now, but you know, we're the leaders in pate in the US. And that is something that most Americans haven't tried even now. And so we're constantly trying to figure out ways to, to reach them, um, to reach consumers who either know a little bit about it, have tried it once or twice, or maybe have never tried it, but are a little bit scared, but would be willing to try it. And so one of the, you know, our initiatives for, for this year is, you know, we're not that big a company, so we can't reach every possible consumer ourselves. It's just we don't have the marketing budget of Pepsi or Coca-Cola or anything mm. like that. So we're focused on kind of training the trainer and working with our retail partners to help make sure they, you know, the person behind the cheese counter, if they're selling the pate, they have the knowledge about pate to pass it on to the consumers who visit them. And so we want to take those, you know, train them so then they can bring it to the thousands and thousands of people that they interact with every day. Mm -hmm. And so that's really our, our initiative this year. Do you do in-store sampling or do you do sampling with those employees? We do in-store sampling. We Prior to the pandemic, we did a fair amount of in-store sampling. We haven't ramped it up as much as um, before. So we're not anywhere near the levels we were before. You know, some of our retail partners are just slowly bringing it back. And I think when we look forward, you know, towards the next years, you know, I think it will become more and more again part of our marketing mix. Um, but I think we don't want to be limited to just reaching people through those demos because demos are really expensive way to, to reach people. Yeah. And, you know, if it's in a retailer where it's without that much high traffic and you may not it may not have a positive return to have a demo there. But if we can train that person who's in the deli department or the cheese shop there, um, then they can reach people every single day, even when there's not a demo. So that's, you know, demos are definitely part of our marketing mix, but we want to, you know, plus it up with other ways of reaching people. Okay. And what would you say is next for Village Gourmet? So I think we're constantly trying to innovate within our product categories while staying true to the authenticity and heritage of the brands and obviously in the quality too. And so, you know, this year, um, you mentioned a little bit, we're launching the flavored ham. So uh, we launched our sliced um, French ham a couple years ago. It's doing really well. And we're launching a rosemary ham, a Mike's Hot Honey ham, uh, which is in collaboration with them, which oh. I think will be really fun. Mm -hmm. um, you should um, try it sometime. <laughs> and then uh, also a, um, a smoked ham and a truffle ham. So those are all launching this year, um, right now. And then we're also launching a line of refrigerated entrees. And so, you know, different um, recipes that are true to our French heritage, um, but bring them in ways that are accessible to the modern consumer that they can eat on a night when they don't want to go to a restaurant or don't want to prepare a meal or don't want to order you know, delivery, which delivery gets really, really expensive. And so mm -hmm. I think this is a way we can reach them with a really high quality product um, that, you know, no, is different from whatever else is on the market right now. Okay. Mike's Hot Honey is um, an SFA member company, and they actually won a pitch competition that we had a few years ago. Yeah. So I'm just curious, how did you get hooked up with them for the ham product? Um, so the, the Hot Honey ham was actually my wife's idea. We were, <laughs> I was just talking with her, telling her we were going to be you know, launching some new hams, and we are brainstorming ideas, and she loves Mike's Hot Honey and thought it would be a really cool 
you know, ham flavor. And I was like, all right, why not? And we tried it and we loved it. And so um, our marketing team reached out to them and they've been super easy to work with and a great partner. And just, um, yeah, it's a great product. So adding it to what is already hopefully really good ham, adding Mike's Hot Honey makes it even better. Wow. And then so that's like a co-branded product? It's a co-branded product. Oh, are there any other co-branded products on the horizon? Yeah, we're actually launching a um, Jasper Hill co-branded egg bite. Um, so we're using their Whitney cheese, which is an award-winning cheese, with our egg bites and partnered again. It's co-branded, and, and we're launching it right now. So um, we're really excited about that. And then with Fabrique de Lis, um, we're launching a co-branded uh, um, flavored butter or compound butter with Eastern St. Mare. So Eastern St. Mare is a French butter producer, hundreds of years of heritage in Normandy, um, amazing butter. And we're taking that butter and you know, making a truffle butter and making a garlic and herb butter, um, a lemon pepper butter. And so I think, and that we're also launching this year. So we got a lot of stuff we're launching this year and a lot of it is actually co-branded, which is something that we hadn't really done in the past, but I think it's an exciting way to, you know, want to work with other companies and kind of bring both brands to each other. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, we can have people recognize the East St. Mare butter, but then they also know that Fabrique de Lis is an American company and, and how we can you know, together make a product that each on its own wouldn't be able to do. Do those co-branded products usually open new distribution channels for you as well? Um, yeah, you know, we're actually launching all those right now, so it's it's still early. Um, but I think one of the cool things is that, you know, someone who is buying Jasper Hill cheese, you know, may not have considered our egg bite before. And I mean, a buyer as in a grocery mm -hmm. store um, buyer. And now it's like, oh, wow, you know, we already we sell a lot of Jasper Hill cheese. And I love it. Let's also bring an egg bite in and, and vice versa. Um, and same thing with um, Eastern East St. Mary Butter, that's for sure, because they sell mm -hmm. Um, to many, many retailers, their butter that we we're not a butter company, and so by combining forces, we're able to reach all their consumers and customers, and all of our consumer and customers. Okay, well, we're almost out of time, but before we go, I'd like you to take part in our Take Five segment, where we ask our guests five questions. But first, let's take a short break. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Okay, here are your five questions for our final segment, Take Five. What's your favorite thing about the specialty food industry? You know, coming in without having any food experience at all, it's just people have been incredibly welcoming and helpful, even just going out of their way to, to help uh, with no, nothing in it for them at all. So I really, the people in this industry have been fantastic to work with and uh, really enjoy working with them. Okay, and what do you like most about being a specialty food association member? Well, I think the food shows are, you know, the fancy food shows are just a classic part of the industry. And being part of those has always been, you know, 
key moments in our calendar every year to meet with our current um, customers, but also hopefully get new customers and also just catch up with other people in the industry. And if you weren't running a business, what would you be doing? I don't know. <laughs> I think I would be running a business in a different industry, I guess. Okay. You know, I mean, I, I'm not sure. I've always, I'm not going to go back in the Marines at this point. So, um, you know, I've thought about, I've, I'm happy in uh, specialty food, so I'd like to stay here. But if I did another industry, I have a lot of friends who um, are in the clothing industry and maybe do something in, in that. Okay. And what's the one piece of advice you'd give a new food business? To just ask other people in the industry for help. Um, and don't be shy about it and you know, just reach out. It can be a cold email call or our connection and 99% of the time they're going to help. And so don't, don't be shy about that. And there's a ton of resources out there, both through the SFA on the website, or, but just people in the industry that are here and willing to help you. And so um, take advantage of it because you know, someday hopefully you can pay it back too. Great. And how do you define specialty food? Yeah, that's a great question because if you go, you know, with my friends and my family, no one ever says specialty food. <laughs> I've never, you know, my wife's never saying, oh, I want to go buy some specialty food. Like, that's just right. not really in the vernacular anymore. And so um, it's not a common word, but to me, what specialty food means is food where the goal is quality, right? And that, that's what we're aiming for, to make the best quality product that we can. And I think that is what differs us from, you know, other food companies or industries where it might be, you know, more price-based or mass market or things like that. And so really being focused on quality, to me, that's what defines specialty. Okay. A big thanks to David Kemp for joining us today. You can find out more about this show at specialtyfood.com and heritageradionetwork.org. And remember to follow wherever you get your podcasts. Come back often to get to know the people who are shaping the future of food. Special thanks to David and to Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. This is Spill and Dish, a Specialty Food Association podcast. Spill and Dish, a Specialty Food Association podcast, is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.